Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Shortley. Hope you're very well. Uh, cracking episode coming up today, but just to let you in on a bit of a secret about tomorrow's episode. Big interview on the podcast tomorrow. With the head of MI5, Ken McCallum took over MI5 at the start of the first lockdown last year in his first ever interview. He's been speaking to me about what it takes to run agents for MI5, the life and death decisions that uh, MI5 officers have to make, the impact of encryption, uh, social media encryption, on their ability to prevent terror attacks, and why has MI5 got a train set? All of that coming up on the episode tomorrow. It's a joint interview. Ken McCallum uh, alongside Neil Basu, uh, the UK's most senior counter-terrorism officer. There's an awful lot of discussion about uh, how to prevent future uh, terrorism attacks. But also just a lot about their work to try and uh, keep us all safe. So that is coming up on the episode tomorrow. You're not going to want to miss that. A special hour-long edition of the podcast tomorrow. Uh, a cracking episode today, though. We're asking, what does the Red Wall really think? There has been so much tosh uh, uh, said about what the people in the North really think. Well, there's a great new poll out. It's taken the radical decision of just asking them. Uh, so we'll find out what the poll says, and then we'll speak to one of the Tories who's broken through in the Red Wall, uh, Ben Houchen, the Tees Valley Mayor, and ask, is he really a Conservative? Uh, that's coming up on the podcast. But first, of course, we kick off with our columnist panel. No Indian night today. Uh, she's off having a bit of a lie down. So we're joined by Katie Balls from The Spectator and our very own James Marriott. Katie, you've written about the prospects of everything we hope you got June the 21st in your Spectator column this week. And obviously, it feels like we spent the last week in an absolute tizwiz, and the upshot of it all was, it's probably going to be okay. Yeah, I think there's cautious optimism, cautious if you speak to anyone in number 10, but definitely I don't think... Uh figures in number 10 or across government are as worried as potentially on Friday. And I think the, the data is uh, encouraging. And also the Prime Minister, I think, is very keen to unlock and thinks perhaps Sage have overdone it. Now, he thought that previously um, and it been perhaps proven wrong. Um, but I do think there's a sense that uh, the variant is, at the moment doesn't seem as though it's going to be the, the nightmare scenario that some were suggesting last week. And where are we in the sort of in the internal Tory party tensions? It, it feels as if the reopen right now gang are a bit quieter than normally. They just resign themselves to the June the 21st. I think there are 
the reopen right now, gang, obviously we still like it if you reopen, but I think everyone has realised that's not going to happen. Um, and I think as soon as uh, you saw uh, news about the Indian variant uh, rise up, you had a situation where all the old COVID debates came back to the surface and people you know, pushing, those who want to slow down any end to social distancing, those who want a tighter border policy, um, those who want vaccine passports in more places, all making those arguments again. And that means all those Tory backbenchers who spend lots of time saying go faster realise well, their main priority in that case is making sure June 21 is a proper reopening as they come to see it. So I think that's become the focus again. But interestingly, uh, calling around MPs this week, it's not just the COVID recovery group that's very much set on June 21st. Um, you had a situation when quite uh, moderate MPs who in the past have been quite supportive of, of measures and I say, you know, we have to stick with that because we've made so much of the vaccine programme success. It would uh, be, uh, you know, snatching defeat from jaws of victory if we now said, oh, it isn't enough. Yeah, and I think that there is. It does feel like there's a sort of slight uh, change in the air that people, you know, but I probably count myself in this. Who for ages have said, "Look, this whole thing is a nightmare. Uh, not everything the government has done is perfect, but let's just get everyone jabbed." Uh, slow instead and all of that. And now there, is, there are times when I feel like even I'm going sort of full Hartley Brewer uh, on the um, <laughs> on the how long do we really have to stay indoors for? But there's this plan. Uh, obviously, you know, getting people jabbed is very important. The plan is to get all adults done by July. There's some suggestions in the papers today. It might even be June. But there's this plan, um, uh, James, to uh, potentially try and encourage young people. I'm asking you because you are a young person. Um, that the way to uh, make COVID vaccinations seem sexy is to promote them on Tinder. Is that the sort of thing that's going to persuade you to roll up your sleeve? Well, my theory on this is it's going to make make them seem less sexy because I think if you really if the idea is that you're going to get more matches on Tinder if you've been vaccinated, um, this thing that's going to appeal to less attractive people who really need the boost. Therefore, the less attractive will be more likely to become vaccinated. Therefore, vaccines will seem slightly less sexy than they did before. This is my personal take. <laughs> I hadn't really thought of it like that. <laughs> I might be overthinking it. But yeah, there's a. But there's. I mean, in six weeks, we will be discussing a new study out about how uh, ugly people are more likely to get the vaccine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, is this going to work? Do you think, Katie? Is, are they actually genuinely concerned about the idea that young people won't won't get the jab? They seem to be because we've had endless stories. I think there was a slightly cringe quote a few weeks ago, which is, you know, the Johnson Johnson jab's perfect for the young because it's one jab and you can just go to Ibiza. Now it turns out you might be allowed to go to Ibiza. <laughs> um, but but uh, I don't know. I keep reading these reports and there's someone who I don't think I'm technically that young, but I'm young enough to not have been offered the vaccine yet. And it is hang on, no, 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 it's okay. It's okay. The really young people are having their jab as well because I've had mine. So it's still they yeah, are they're, yeah. they're really on to the very young people there. I mean, it's just quite frustrating to constantly read reports about how they're going to tempt us to get the vaccine when most of my friends and even younger people I know are just saying, offer me the vaccine. <laughs> quite a lot of people are quite desperate to get it so they can start, you know, thinking about holidays and things like that. So um, I, I'm not sure if the problem is going to be as great as uh, the government is perhaps imagining. Does this slightly point, James, to a, a problem? Like, I mean, maybe this is always a problem in politics, but a disconnect between uh, politicians and the young people. Yeah, maybe, because I've got to say my experience is the same as Katie's. Me and everybody I know is absolutely champing at the bit to get the vaccine for all the reasons she mentioned. But I mean, I don't know. Um, this is London. Maybe things that maybe things that maybe things are different elsewhere across the country. I don't know if they're basing this on any um, any data or whatever. Um, 
But yeah, I suppose, I don't know. I've got a feeling from, from memory that some of the polling early on suggested the young people were less keen on getting the vaccine. But now it's there, it's a thing. Yeah, I mean, the theory that I suppose, you know, you need it less because we all know that we're much less likely to become ill um, kind of, you know, maybe maybe make some sense. But as you say, yeah, maybe how in touch with the young is Boris Johnson? I have absolutely no idea. I assume I assume <laughs> not very, but I might be doing him a disservice. I mean, he's barely in touch with some of the under 10, <laughs> some of the under 10s that he's uh, related to. So never, never mind the rest of the nation. <laughs> James, let's talk about your column today. Uh, nostalgia. Um, uh, nostalgia isn't what it used to be, or, or why actually it's not, it's not a bad sign if we are nostalgic. Yeah, this is a kind of long-running obsession of mine. I'm, a, I'm an extremely, uh, probably almost pathologically nostalgic person. Um, I'm always, I mean, my, 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 my friends, um, such the, those that I have left after my endless nostalgia trips, I take them on a, I think, probably bored sick of me forcing them to go to, you know, <laughs> back to university, stand on particular street corners, go to particular cafes and pubs and say, I remember this time when we were here and, we, and this happened, and then I get to feel all kind of fuzzy and slightly sort of yearning about the past. Um, so I was really pleased, because I've always viewed this as slightly kind of, you know, weird personal pathological thing. There's a, um, a big article in the Harvard Business Review of all places this month saying that nostalgia might actually uh, improve your performance at work um, I think they called it a self-regulatory existential resource, which is very Harvard Business Review uh, way to put things. I don't really know what that means, but the basic thrust of the article seemed to be that somehow it would make you more connected to your colleagues and have a greater sense of purpose. It seemed a little bit tenuous to me, uh, but this is an excuse for me to say that I think, I think nostalgia is a wonderful thing. Um, I think the idea that we should all live in the present is immensely overrated. I, I just think our past lives are so rich and tell us so much about who we are and um, give so much meaning, I think we should be much less sort of cautious about spending a lot of time brooding over them. And then there are all kinds of really interesting um, scientific studies recently um, that say that um, increased nostalgia is sort of connected with an increased sense of meaning and purpose about your life, which sounds vaguely wishy-washy, but... Um, this kind of sense of meaning factor is associated with, um, strongly associated with better well-being, actually also with lower mortality. Um, the, my, other, my other interesting fact is we always think of nostalgia as a kind of moping emotion, but actually, apparently, if it has a sort of um, evolutionary function, it seems to be that when you're depressed or lonely and you reflect on the past, this actually kind of increases your sense of belonging. Um, the bittersweet quality of nostalgia actually is apparently overwhelmingly positive and can make you feel better. People in cold rooms who are forced to be nostalgic actually report... Uh, a subjective higher sense of their own body temperature uh, than it literally than makes you feel warm, literally warm makes you and feel fuzzy. Warm and fuzzy. That's really interesting. What are you, Katie? Are you a living in the moment, or are you um, hopelessly nostalgic? Um, I think over the past year or so, I've definitely become more nostalgic because there hasn't been much else to see. There's not much moment and, to live in. So yeah, yeah. And kind of, and I think it's, I thought this piece was really interesting. But you look back now and things I did, uh, you know, three years ago, and, and it is actually quite nice to think about those memories and probably kind of wallow a bit in nostalgia. So, so I, I think it is quite a positive thing, and also uh, I think. Often we don't, I mean, it's a bit of a cliche, but, you know, when you're growing up, you're just desperate to be old. Like, you cannot wait to be an adult and to leave your small town. And then you think back to to back when, you you know, that, that period. And, and actually you do think, oh, why didn't I appreciate it more? Um, so so I, think, I think there is a lot in kind of um, reflecting on things you got to do previously. And that point you were making, James, about, you know, it possibly making you a better employee or colleague. I suppose if part of nostalgia is it's, it's often to do with other people and shared experience and valuing that over, I don't know, uh, money 
or you know um uh you know just being driven by what's happening right now and who's up and who's down and how much money we and all that sort of thing that may maybe the, the sort of person who values shared experience with other human beings that does make you a more rounded yeah absolutely individual. i mean i think that's actually um virtually said what the study said so you can oh, you've done, you've done your research well, um, it, that basically makes me a harvard professor doesn't it I, that's what i'm calling I've you now, now been on. to harvard <laughs> that's, i think that's what's <laughs> happened um yes so the study the study basically was saying um you know a lot of especially nostalgia that you know we have around shared experiences old films old music it all gives us this, this kind of i think very intimate sense of connection to people who've um who've shared that there's just one kind of other thing i want to say on the back of what katie was saying about being nostalgic about her childhood that I wish I got to fit into the column, this kind of anecdotal thing I've observed, is that everybody my age who I've spoken to seems to be nostalgic about like their time at university or maybe their late teens. Um, and everyone I've spoken to who's a bit older, maybe in later middle age, um, is very nostalgic about their childhood, which is something I never, ever think about. And I'm sort of wondering if that might be a thing that sort of flips. Because I've read a couple of people recently saying that suddenly as they get older, they start thinking about their childhood a lot and that period in between seems less important. Um, so I'd love to kind of, I'd love to know more about that and how universal that is. That's really, that is really interesting because my, my sort of sense is that you, well, I feel probably more nostalgic about sort of late teens, early 20s because it's most like what you are now. And yeah. that, you know, you're an adult, you can go out and do things and you know, so I don't, I don't spend my whole time thinking, oh, I really wish I was back at primary school because that's, that's like, <laughs> there are so many normal things like that that I couldn't do. But, you know, my days at the Taunton Times of going out and uh, staying out for most of the night and then falling asleep at the to- in the toilets, that was a lot of fun. Uh, and obviously I would never do that now that I'm at, um, at, at the Times. Um, I would definitely never do that now. My favourite bit, and this may be the first one that anyone's ever quoted uh, One Direction in a uh, Times comment piece, but you pointing out that in 2012... One Direction released a wistful song called Rock Me that begins, Do You Remember Summer 09? <laughs> <laughs> this is only three years before. Uh, you a big uh, One Direction fan, Katie? Um, probably a bit of a stretch. Um, <laughs> I, I think I'd, I'd struggle to name any specific songs um, by them, but I wouldn't leave um, a venue if they played. James Marriott and Katie Balls there. Now, you can read James's piece uh, all about his love of nostalgia online right now. Go to thetimes.co.uk uh, and get yourself a time subscription. Up next, what does the Red Wall really think? It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now, what does the Red Wall really think? First of all, can I congratulate you on this radical approach to... uh... (laughs) Um, uh, dealing with the assumptions about what the Red Wall really thinks. Uh, Because Uh, as we all know, uh, people in the Red Wall uh, wear flat caps, uh, keep pigeons Mm -hmm. and whippets. Mm -hmm. Uh, They don't like uh, climate change. They're not bothered about climate change. Uh, Mm -hmm. They just want lots of free stuff. They might, yeah, they've all got a flagpole in their garden. Uh, they want uh, lots of statues of people putting Mm -hmm. up flagpoles. That's, That's basically right, isn't it? I've done your job for you. Oh, I mean, uh, yeah, pretty much. We should have just asked you recently. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so, I mean, obviously, uh, at YouGov, we like to go get data. Uh, we don't like dealing with assumptions. Um, so, and this is, this is kind of a story, I think, that was, has been developing a lot since the 2019 election, right? It's kind of this, this old adage of what does the Red Wall think? How will this play in the Red Wall? And there's kind of this myth, this big mythology that the Red Wall was some kind of extreme on this sort of ideological or the political spectrums. Like you had to go and offer them sort of all these different things and you had to appeal to their social conservatism. So what we thought we'd do is let's let's actually, as you say, let's go ask, let's go find out. And what the poll suggested is two things, right? Firstly, is that most people in the Red Wall, the average person in the Red Wall is just the same as the average Briton. All the sort of findings that we looked at in terms of what do you think about immigration? What do you think about Brexit? What do you think about all these sorts of things? Generally in line, a little bit more positive toward Brexit, but all these sorts of things, they just look like the average British voter. So the adage should really be, how will this go down with the average voter? Because that would get you the red wall. The second thing we found is that we asked loads and loads of questions about a lot of things which people might consider sort of social, liberal or progressive policies to see if it's true that the Red Wall voter or the Red Wall resident doesn't care about climate change, is socially conservative, doesn't like change and all these sort of different metrics. And what we found is that is fundamentally not true. There's a whole heap of issues on which the Red Wall generally take liberal or at least very neutral positions. And that includes transgender rights, teaching about Britain's colonial and slave trade past in schools, climate change, multiculturalism, restricting hate speech in line. And yes, they're even more positive on immigration than they are negative. So all of these assumptions that we have about, that we're going around about the Red Wall and Red Wall voters, they they just don't stack up when you look at the data. And so, (laughs) I mean, we could have spared ourselves so many think pieces about what the Red Wall thinks (laughs) and why. Is it, 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 sometimes maybe we overcomplicate politics. Is it just as straightforward as... Uh, right, you know, politics is about uh, having some policies and selling them. And uh, if they are in tune, they will resonate everywhere. And that, that what Boris Johnson has currently got is some policies which seem to resonate across the country. Uh, and and that is also true of, of, uh, of these red wall seats. I think that's absolutely spot on. Yeah, I really do. I think that if we look across, particularly England right now, the Conservatives are carrying England and the, and the Conservatives are carrying the Red Wall. And it's as simple as the fact that they have popular policies. They do sort of, they, they, they kind of won the Brexit argument and they won a lot of voters over who are quite pro-Brexit in the Red Wall to the sort of Conservative cause there. And they're holding on to them by having policies that 
these these people, these voters like. And that's the long and short of it. It's not that there's some kind of extreme group of voters that you need to have specific like sort of socially conservative strategies to get back and win over. It's not the case at all. It's just at the minute the Conservatives are popular across the country and that includes the Red Wall. And I suppose, crucially, there's been this long-standing cultural thing in many of these... In fact, maybe this is the most important part, is that uh, in many of these long-standing Labour seats, mm. uh, the I could never uh, vote Conservative, my great-grandfather would be spinning in his grave. Uh, that sort of mm-hmm. cultural attachment to the Labour Party has fallen away for all sorts of reasons, you know, the decline of the unions, mm-hmm. uh, a, a, a feeling of neglect and all that sort of thing. And so essentially just means... Like other parts of the country, these voters are up for grabs. And at the moment, it's the Conservative Party who are grabbing them because it's maybe politics is a bit more transactional in, than, than cultural. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think that's I, th- I think, again, that's that's, that's 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 spot on. When we look at the original kind of definition of 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 that sort of red wall or the sort of the conceptions around it, it's kind of you looked at all these seats which probably might have perhaps should have been voting Conservative more often than they do, given their social demographics, right? That was kind of the core idea. And they perhaps should have been swing seats or should have been closer to swing seats, and they weren't. And now it kind of looks like they are. So now they're just kind of behaving a little bit more like most other seats around the country where you have a good like a diversity of people, a diversity of opinions, and a good representation of people that should be voting Labour and people that should sort of based on their background be voting Conservative. And I think we all know that politics, and particularly voting behaviour, is very habitual, right? If someone goes out to vote once, they tend to go out and vote again and again and again. If somebody doesn't go out to vote, they tend to then not go out and vote again and again and again. And you're right, there was a kind of habit or a kind of a culture, if you like, of these sort of communities just voting Labour because of generational things, because of identity, etc., etc. And sort of once you break habit in that sense, it can be very, very hard to then snap back into it. So as you say, I think these voters are now just this kind of that 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 sort of veil, if you like, or that kind of cultural set thing where they will go out and vote Labour, that's now been taken away. So the party is going to have to compete over them. So Labour are competing now, but I don't think, I think it would be a mistake for them to think that they have to sort of go out on a limb and compete completely differently for those voters as they do for sort of the median voter across the country. That's really interesting. It's sort of good advice there that the answer isn't to sort of have a special collection of red wall policies over here and a special mm. collection over that, you know, Actually, building a, a broad coalition across the country is uh, yes. is, is probably the answer. Um, uh, Patrick, it's really good to speak to you. Patrick English, a, a pollster from uh, YouGov. Uh, and you can go online. And it, it, genuinely, if you think you knew all about what the Red Wall may uh, think and your, your assumptions about them, go online to the, uh, the YouGov website and have a look. One of the most interesting is although... Um, Red Wall residents slightly more likely to think that Britain was right to leave the EU. 50% said they were right, uh, Britain was right to leave the EU, compared to about 41% uh, amongst all Britons. When asked how is the government handling Brexit, 45% of Red Wall residents say well, 43% of all Britons say well. So there's not actually that much difference at all. And it's Normally, when we look at polling and this sort of thing, we're always looking for the difference. And actually, uh, what we find is that there's uh, far fewer differences. And on the question of uh, who do you think would make the best Prime Minister, uh, 26% of uh, people in Britain say Keir Starmer, 26% of people in the Red Wall say Keir Starmer, although uh, Boris Johnson's uh, poll ratings are slightly higher. Well worth having a look at that. Go online and have a look at that. Right, coming up in a moment, we're going to speak to one of these Conservatives has broken through and made a success in uh, precisely these Red Wall areas, Ben Houchen, the Tees Valley Mayor. We're talking about the Red Wall. So let's get the inside track on how Conservatives win in the Red Wall, not just once, 
But again and again, we can now speak to Ben Houchen, Conservative Mayor for Tees Valley. Uh, morning, Ben. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me on. No, always good to have you on the show. First of all, congratulations on uh, your re-election uh, two weeks ago uh, now in the Tees Valley uh, mayoralty. What do you put it down to? Because not so long ago, people have said, Tees Valley, you could put a, I don't know, a, 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 a pig in a red rosette up in uh, that part of the world and Labour would always win. What do you put it down to, your initial election there and your repeated, uh, your, your re-election and, uh, and Tory gains uh, in other elections in that part of the world too? I mean, to be honest, Matt, I was just listening to you, you and Patrick talk about the... Uh... The work that YouGov have done on on Redwall compared to the rest of the country, and, and it sounds ridiculous, but I've got nothing more to add because Great. it's exactly so it's exactly. Bye -bye. We can, so I can, <laughs> I can get on with the job now. But no, you're absolutely right. There is no difference between you know the Redwall voter isn't some mystical creature that's different to the rest of the country. They want the same things as everybody else. They want a job. They want you know a future for their children. They want to be able to aspire to earn more money and buy a bigger house and have a car. Uh, I mean that's an oversimplification, but you know that's the, the things that everybody wants. And what's interesting is actually the, the conversation you you start to have with Patrick, which is the cultural change and that habitual change of voting habit, which has been coming for some time, right? I mean if you look at the statistics going back to 2005, Labour have been going backwards in the red wall seat, certainly in my region at every election, local, national or European since 2005. And the thing that accelerated that break was Brexit. We thought it was going to happen in 2017. A lot of people thought that Brexit was done. Obviously, it wasn't. Um, and that then led to this change of people who took more interest in politics who, who previously didn't. And it, it broke that link, that historic link with the Labour Party that had been there a long time. So we're now in a space where, as Patrick rightly pointed out, I think we're in a competitive environment now rather than one that is usually very difficult for the Conservative Party. But that's all that it is. We're just going to have very much more competitive politics in places like Teesside. And I suppose it's one of those things that, that because the change, in, uh, particularly in the number of uh, MPs, happened in 2019, people think it all happened in 2019, it was all necessarily down to Boris Johnson, but actually this, this trend has been happening for some time. You know, yeah. some, some of those yeah. monster majorities in seats have, have becoming smaller and smaller, and then there's a sort of tipping point, and then when they all go from red to blue, people get very excited, but it's a long-term long change, isn't it? Yeah, and a really interesting example of that was Bishop Auckland. Um, I mean, it was the number one target seat for us in, in 2019. It was an obvious one that it felt in the campaign that we were going to take quite comfortably. But if you go back to 1997 and just look at the results since 1997, we've just been gradually chipping away at what was a stonking majority for the Labour Party back then to now, a, I think it's an eight 9,000 majority for Diana Davison. So you can take that same example across many red wall seats and see that this isn't something that has just appeared in the last couple of years, but it's certainly something that's accelerated, I would say, since 2017. And are you, and this is sort of a slightly teasing question I've been asking, more, are you really a Conservative? What makes <laughs> you a Conservative? What is, I mean, I'm genuinely interested, what, it, what is Conservatism in, in 2021? Well, for me, it's just pragmatism. I think Conservatives are much more pragmatic, slightly less ideologically focused, um, in, in my sense, I'm instinctively pro-business because without business and investment, you don't create jobs. And ultimately, what everybody wants are jobs so they can have more money in their pockets to look after themselves and their families. That's what we do this job for, to help people raise communities out of poverty and deprivation and give people a future that they can be hopeful for and work towards. So, you know, I, and I, I think within that very loose framework that can mean a lot of things, then you have a very uh, practical conservatism at the minute. And especially, you know, I, I do seem to fit very comfortably into a Boris Johnson government. But I also think that's slightly because he, he has been a mayor himself and is 
and is less kind of ideologically driven. He's not necessarily a libertarian of the party, which um, which is where the country is, right? When it goes towards the, the polling that you were just talking about before, the country is very central ground at the minute, and the Conservatives are slap bang middle in the in the centre ground. But I was I was looking through your uh, your pitch to the electorates that you you put out for the um, uh, for the elections a couple of weeks ago, and we're talking about. You know, um, uh, su- supporting, bolstering essentially a state-owned airport, lots of public sector jobs being moved to your patch, an awful lot of public sector money being poured into it. And I just what I mean, th- there's nothing that you couldn't really see a Labour uh, Party sort of promising, is there? It's not, it's not sort of small state, low tax, you know, let the market r- rule the day. That's not your politics, is it? No, but the, politi- like the politics that I have is using government as a mechanism to incentivise private sector investment. So, for example, if you take the, the move of the Treasury or the economic campus to Darlington, you know, the, the 1,500 to 2,000 jobs that are going to come with that because we've got bays, DIT and probably other departments that will be joining them is fantastic, right? You know, you know no, nobody should sniff at 1,500 additional jobs within their town. But it's what it actually brings with it. If it was just 1,500 jobs, it would be nice. But that's not really what we want. It's about... Since that announcement, we've been inundated by private sector businesses, largely in the financial services sector, some of the magic circle law firms, some of the big accountancy firms are now saying, well, we want to relocate to Darlington. So that then brings private sector investment with it because private sector investment does follow power as well. So if you start to move some of that power using the power of the government, which is partly relocation, then you're stimulating the private sector as well, which creates more jobs. And it's the same with the airport. The airport is a key piece of infrastructure that in and of itself you know, getting people a few flights to Alicante and, you know, the Spanish islands is great, but it's a front door to the rest of the world for international investors to come to our region. So it's what it enables, which is the big thing. And the thing that I always kind of centre on, and I don't know why I've always kind of hooked onto it, I always remember something that Milton Friedman said, which was, you know, the problem with government is not in the things that it tries, but in the absence of any mechanism of recognising failure. And so as long as well, I'm, I'm hoping to be able to continue in my tenure with this, with this, uh, with this vein. Is that as long as you recognise that if you try something and it fails, you don't then subsidise it or turn it into another public sector organisation or program, then you are acting in similar vein to the the private sector. The problem is obviously there is an absence of profit motive in the public sector, so you need to look at different drivers and different targets to make sure that that keeps you true. That when you achieve failure, which hopefully we don't then you don't continue to allow a failing programme or a failing project to continue. You, what do you think of Margaret Thatcher? I, I, I think she was a popular politician. She was re-elected three times. She obviously did some fantastic work in the northeast region. You know, the Nissan factory was under Margaret Thatcher, the Teesside Development Corporation, which built Middlesbrough Football Club, Teesside Park, which is a major retail development, the Maria in Hartlepool. I mean, it did a huge amount of good. Uh, in the late 80s and early 90s. But, you know, I mean, I was born in 1986, Matt, so I don't remember anything of Margaret Thatcher myself personally. Yeah, a little bit younger than me. Um, yeah. Because, because, you know, there are some of your colleagues in government in Westminster who have sort of p- portraits of Margaret Thatcher on their on their ward, and a lot of what you're talking about, Margaret Thatcher would have wanted to to privatise the airport, wouldn't she? She wouldn't. She'd have wanted to have fewer civil servants, not be moving them around the country. And I just wonder whether... Uh, sort of being a conservative now is is really just about the blue uh, the blue rosette that gets you elected. You know, it's about the policy. It's more transactional, basically. The, the idea of small state, private goods, uh, state bad. That seems like a very long, long way ago. You're not someone who's got, I assume, a portrait of Margaret Thatcher on your wall? No, no, I don't. <laughs> but it's also slightly different because of the position that I hold. So I, I think you're right. I think the Conservative Party at the moment is much more 
um, kind of results driven and delivery driven and, you know, is much more flexible. I mean, we've just seen the announcement of Great British Rail, which is an interesting announcement from a Conservative government. So you can see the flexibility that this government has. But with me, I mean, as a mayor, you can be much more transactional. You know, the ideological arguments of free market politics or big state and all the rest of it doesn't really come into it. It's about how, you know, what's the best way to bring more jobs to the region? How do we improve public transport? You know, how do we make sure that, um, you know, a key piece of infrastructure like the airport succeeds? And so you you can, you're in a very fortunate position as a metro mayor that you can step to one side and not discuss the big politics that they often talk about in Westminster <laughs> and be much more practical, which I think has led largely to where the Conservative Party is, because I think that's where, where Boris Johnson is as well. So I'm fortunate. But at the same time, Matt... I mean, you know, people talk about the airport, which I suppose I'll forever be linked with. But at the same time, I think it's fair to say that we championed and espoused the most free market policy that this government has in free ports. So, again, it, it demonstrates that it's not about big state good, small state bad. It's about what feels right for the geography that I represent. Uh, so if, if not Margaret Thatcher, then, and let's part the present incumbent, because that's the obvious easy answer. Who is your who's your favourite Conservative Prime Minister? Um, well, my kind of... I first became aware of politics under Tony Blair. My first memory of politics was the 97 election day. I remember being sat in front of the telly. I was about 10, 11 years old, which got me interested in politics. Um, obviously, we had wall-to-wall -wall Labour councils, 13 years of a Labour government, and as a bit of a contrarian, it led me to become a Conservative. And, you know, having really got involved in the Conservative Party under David Cameron, you know, I think it helped, it probably did help shape me to understand that, you know, politics is fought in the centre ground. And that's what David Cameron had to do with the Conservative Party. He started that journey with where we are at the moment. And then having grown up under Tony Blair, you recognise that he was trying to drag the party from the left to the centre as well. So, you know, it's kind of shaped my practical view of politics that, you know, it's running the centre. And as Patrick was saying a few minutes ago when you were speaking to him, it's about putting forward a set of ideas and a, and a vision and a policy that people buy into. And that can be left, right, it can be a mixture of, of all sorts, but it's very much all in the centre ground. And so looking ahead now, what are the risks for this this strain of conservatism that you and Boris Johnson are, are pursuing? Is it, is it if it is, basically, I suppose if politics is more transactional, you've got to deliver on the deal, haven't you? That, that you've got to make sure yeah. that all of the promises are, are delivered. What, what's the risk if you don't manage to do that? Well, then we'll lose an election. I mean, I, I've said very strongly on a number of times uh, to both uh, the Prime Minister and wide, wider government and to the newly elected local Conservative MPs, you know, this is a government that is standing on a, on a ticket, really, of, of delivering. And so at the next general election, whether that's in three years' time or sooner, um, I suspect it, I personally think it will be in three years' time because I think the government needs that three years so that, you know, the next general election, Boris can come up to Teesside and he can point to real things. And even if they're not fully finished, he can point to physical things that are going on that are in construction. And he can say, well, look, this has been delivered. This is what we are delivering. And so people expect real tangible differences. Now, I don't think that the public expects everything to be solved within the next three years. But what they do expect is to see very clear signs of progress if we want to hold, hold seats like the Redwall. I mean, Hartlepool is a great example. The number of people I spoke to on the doorstep who said, well, we've never had anything from Labour. Why don't we try the Conservative woman? She'll be great. And if she's not, we'll kick her out in three years' time. Let's see what we get from this Conservative government in three years. So it, it, I think it is very transactional because Boris has set himself out as, I deliver on what I say I'm going to do. That hangs off the back of getting Brexit done. And now that has to translate into the levelling up agenda, which I think in phase one is very infrastructure-based, especially in the north of England that's been neglected for decades. And uh, you talk about the being a general election, maybe three years, maybe maybe sooner. Would you ever stand in one yourself? Do you have any 
ambitions to, to join the House of Commons, maybe get to the Cabinet, maybe even lead your party nationally? <laughs> well, I remember last time I was on mass, we did the uh, race to number 10, and I think I got the question wrong, which made me Transport Secretary. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> I still well, kick myself over that mass question now. Well, we'll... Uh, but no, I mean, at the moment, to be honest, no, I'm, I'm really happy doing what I'm doing, and uh, there's a lot more to do. At the moment, at, at the moment, that's not a no. You're, you're, you're still, um, you're at least leaving open the possibility you might one day uh, head for Westminster. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to. I'm not going to say never, but I mean, I'm, I hope to get re-elected in three years' time because there's still a lot more to do here, and actually, I can play a really key role in making sure that we deliver on what we're doing locally and return more Conservative MPs across the region. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 